We have been uh, teaching for a number of weeks a series on the life of God, and we want to continue with that this morning. There are three really main t- scriptures that we have used to uh, to start the series off. John chapter 1 and verse 4, speaking of Jesus, it said, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. John chapter 5 and verse 26, Jesus said, For as the Father hath life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself. Now, the third one I want you to turn to is over in John chapter 10. We'll start there this morning. I'll uh, repeat some things for some folks that haven't been with us. In the the New Testament was originally written in Greek, translated over into English uh, by uh, a commission by King James of England. Uh, 15 something, I don't know, long time ago. And, uh, uh, as a result, the, uh, the, there are different words that are used in the Greek. Actually, in the, the Greek New Testament, there are four different words that are used for life, translated life into English. Uh, one of the words, um, well, really three of them have to do with either the physical life or behavior, manner of life. And one of them, is the one that that uh, that Jesus always used when he was talking about the life of God or the uh, the life that uh, that he describes as being the life of God. It's the word Greek word zoe z o e. He didn't make up a new word. It wouldn't make sense if he had created or invented a new word because nobody would have known what it meant. And so the word is not used specifically or only exclusively, I should say, in the uh, in the Greek New Testament. It's used in other writings of that day uh, as well. But Jesus always used it, and the Holy Spirit always used it in the, throughout the New Testament to refer to the life of God. It's talking about a quality of life. It's talking about a characteristic of life. Now, in John chapter 10, the third of the, uh, the main scriptures that we're using is in verse 10. Jesus said, the thief, speaking of the devil, he said, the thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. If you want to know the devil's job description, this is it. He's a thief. He steals, he kills, and he destroys. Anything that steals from man is of the devil, not from God. Anything that destroys is from the devil, it's not from God. Anything that kills is from the devil, not from God. So many times the church is, is uh, uh, arguing about or trying to justify or trying to explain away why tragedies happen, and so many times they're blamed on God. But if Jesus told us the truth, God's not behind any tragedy because tragedies steal, kill, and destroy. God's not behind anything. I know. I don't know if it's still this way or not, but it used to be that insurance policies used to call uh, acts of nature acts of God. Well, if a, if a tornado or hurricane or a flood or something like that kills, steals, or destroys, it can't be from God. It's pretty simple if you understand the basics. The devil's doing bad stuff, and God's out to do good stuff. Yet it's so amazing that the church is the one primarily, not the world, but the church is the one primarily blaming the bad stuff on God. And saying we can't understand his purpose. Well, if you understand the basics, you understand God's purpose. And you certainly understand the devil's purpose. His purpose is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But notice Jesus makes the connection or the contrast between the two. The thief cometh not but for to, ki- to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life. Here's this word zoe. It's talking about a quality of life. It's the same quality of life John 5.26 says was in the Father God himself. That is in Jesus as well. I am come that you might have the life of God and that you might have it more abundantly. Now I know it's Palm Sunday and, and Easter is a real special time around my house. It signals the putting away of the Christmas dishes. <laughs> That's a little bit of an exaggeration, but not much. But look at how things have changed since we were kids, since I was a kid at least. When I was a kid in, uh, in school, we had Easter break. There's no such thing as spring break. It was Easter break. Because the reason that spring break came along for kids was because it was tied to Easter. Now, I don't think the schools are allowed to say Easter unless it's followed by the word egg. When I was a kid, you got special Easter clothes. For me, that was the only time of year you did get clothes. And my mom tried to find out stuff that I could, you know, figure out something that I could wear, not just to church, but something I could wear other times of the year as well. It was, it was something that made an impact on me as a kid. And I didn't know anything about it. I knew Jesus. I knew Jesus was the son of God. I knew Jesus went to the cross. I knew Jesus was raised from the dead, but I didn't have the, the, the real understanding of things that I do now, certainly. 
And I don't understand it yet like I'm going to. Now we have Earth Day. Now we have spring break. There could be anything for any reason. Things have changed. One thing that hasn't changed is God and his word. Jesus said, the thief comes not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I'm come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Now, folks, I want to, uh, I want to, to, to move forward a little bit from John chapter 10. Jesus is at the end of his ministry. John is, um, the four gospels are, are, um, important, but John is the, the single most, uh, unique of the four. Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of give us a chronology of Jesus' ministry. John fills in the blanks with things that none of the others tell us. And as a result, John spends a lot more of his writings about Jesus' ministry on the last week and particularly the last day of his time with the the, uh, the apostles, who the disciples who became apostles, than any of the others. And as a result, he tells us some things that... Uh, and he says himself, he says the reason that he did it that way is because none of the disciples, none of the apostles understood things as they were going on. But he writes this some 60 years after Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's in his 90s, his mid-90s somewhere. We don't know exactly, but 92, 94, 95, something like that. And as a result, he's at the end of his life, and he's able to look back and connect the dots with a lot of things that he didn't understand at the time. What an advantage to have been personally acquainted with Jesus and then lived for the period of time that he did after the resurrection so that he could understand things more clearly. I know a lot of times when God is doing things with me and things that he's leading me in, I don't realize the significance until I get several years and 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 in some cases decades away from, from it and able to turn around and look at it. I know when God led us out here to, to move to California to start a church, I can look, and back, look back now and see the significance of certain things that were happening that I completely missed at the time. It's that way with us, isn't it? We don't see everything as it happens. Well, as a result, John tells us some things about Jesus' last days, particularly the last week of his ministry, that I think are really important for this time of the year when everybody stops and gives a little bit more attention to the things of God than they otherwise would. Let's hope they do it for the right reason. That may not be the case in, in, uh, in every situation. But in John chapter 10, he's talking about being the good shepherd. He's talking about his sheep. He's talking about being the guide and the leader for those who will know God through him. And he says, very specifically in John chapter 10, verse 10, I am come that you might have life. I am come that you might have life. Now, Jesus is spoken of in other places as his purpose for coming to the earth is to die for mankind. John said when he came to be baptized of him in the Jordan River, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Well, I thought that was his purpose. It is. I thought his purpose was to die on the cross. It is. But Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life. And the reason for that is you can't have life without death. John chapter 10 tells us about being the good shepherd, about bringing life. God's purpose is to, is to bring us life and to have that life, that life of God, that characteristic of God's nature more abundantly. Chapter 11, he tells us about the raising of Lazarus. Now, you remember the story, I, I trust you do at least, that you remember the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Jesus gets word that Lazarus, his friend, is sick. And he waits for four days where he is, knowing full well that Lazarus is going to die. He explains that to his disciples. He says it kind of cryptically. He says it in a vague way, and so they didn't understand what he was saying. But then he finally explains to him. he says, Lazarus died. And the disciples get real distressed about that. Well, if Lazarus is already dead, what are we going to do? That's the time, after it looks like it's hopeless, that's the time that Jesus makes his way over to Bethany where Lazarus is. Now, in in, uh, in the, the, the story, Jesus says some things. I want you to look with me to John chapter 11, verse 25. When he gets there, Lazarus has two sisters, Mary and Martha. Martha is the first one he sees. She's the one that's always attending to the natural affairs and, and uh, taking care of the house and, and that type of stuff, making sure everybody has enough to eat and, and that type of thing. Mary is the one that always sees, uh, sits at the feet of Jesus whenever you see her referred to in the Scripture. And so it says that when he talks to Martha, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. Here's that word zoe again. It's talking about I'm the life of God. 
Well, that certainly con- confirms John 5, 26. For as the Father has life in himself, whatever the character and the nature and the quality of life that God has is what Jesus had. As the Father has life in himself, so also is he given to the Son to have life in himself. So now he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Notice how life, the life and the nature of God, is connected with resurrection. Now, folks, Christianity differs from any other religion on the face of the earth. And and notice the way that I said that. Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship with God. Now, there are a lot of other religions on the face of the earth. A lot of other doctrines of men, and that's what religion is. Religion is a doctrine of men. And Christianity is not like any other religion on the face of the earth because there is no other religion on the face of the earth that claims to change your nature. Every other doctrine of man out there, Confucianism, Buddhism, Islam, whatever, Hinduism, whatever else is out there, every other religion on the face of the earth has a code of of behavior. It has a doctrine of men, things that someone can do to try to change their behavior, but it never changes their nature. For that reason, there is an ongoing thing. You have to pray a certain number of times per day. You have to make certain sacrifices. You have to do certain things. You You can do things. You can't do things. It's all about what you do and don't do because it's trying to find a way to God through man's efforts, and you can't do it. It can't be done. So Jesus is saying, I'm the resurrection and the life. The life of God, the life and the nature of God. You, you know, it, it's an amazing thing to me how the, the church, and, and, and I'm talking about the church world at large, the church world has made complicated things that are so simple. One of the things that, uh, that always interested me was that it says the common man came to Jesus freely. Jesus talked so that men could understand him. The Pharisees didn't. The Sadducees didn't. The scribes didn't. It talked about Jesus having a unique ministry because he didn't speak like the scribes. He didn't speak like the Pharisees. He talked in plain language where everybody could get it. Wouldn't it be silly for God to talk in language that was too big for man to understand? What would be the point? If he wants to keep man in the dark, why say anything at all? But instead, Jesus came and made God understandable to people. He talked about natural things. He talked about planting seed and growing crops. People understood how that works. He said the kingdom of God is like that. He talked about God being your father like you want to be a good father to your children. People understood that. And as a result, the things of God are simple to understand if you just open your mind and shut out all the religious doctrine. For example, righteousness is something that's been made so complex by the church. You know what righteousness means? Are you ready? Got your pens ready? It means rightness. Who knew? It means rightness. It means a condition of rightness before God. It means a a condition of lack of sin, which is the only way you can be right before God. You can't make yourself right before God by your own activity. There is nothing that can make a person right in himself because no activity or behavior of your own can change your nature. No amount of prayers can change your nature. No amount of rituals or sacrifices or doing this or not doing that or any other thing that any other religion imposes upon you can change your nature, can change your behavior. But even if you get your behavior changed, it doesn't change your nature. Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life. Why? Because the life of God is the only thing that changes the nature of man to become right with God. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Notice that the life of God provides for resurrection. Nothing else does. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Now, a lot of times people confuse this with Jesus just talking about Lazarus, because Lazarus is dead physically. But he's not just talking about physical death. Though he were dead, yet shall he live. Let me ask you a question. How can a physically dead person believe in Jesus? Most people would have the understanding that once you die, your believing is over. At least from a physical standpoint. Right? No, he's not just talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, speaking of the, Paul writing to the church, speaking of the time before we knew Jesus, said, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. See, folks, the problem is not sin. The problem is that we were dead. 
sins are a byproduct of the fact that men are dead. Mankind is dead, spiritually dead. Spiritual death means separation from God. In other words, a nature contrary to or different from God's nature. Separation from God is what spiritual death means. You're separated from God by sin. In other words, sin caused man's nature to change. We'll see that in a minute over in Romans chapter 5. Sin, original sin, caused man's nature to change. He became unright before God. Why? Because his nature changed. Not because his behavior messed up. If his behavior was wrong and that was the only thing there was to it, then all it would have taken was make one sacrifice to, to forgive that one sin, that one mistake. Go on, never make that mistake again, and he's back in the right place with God. But he couldn't be. The sacrifice was made. That's what the sacrifice of Israel was all about. It was about an atonement. It was about making a covering. Righteousness is not a covering. Righteousness is a change of nature. So Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, meaning dead in trespasses and sins, spiritually dead in nature, yet shall he live. Notice life comes by believing in Jesus. It's the only way it comes. Now you can change your behavior any number of ways. But a change of nature, the life of God only comes by believing in Jesus. And whosoever liveth and believeth... In me shall never die, believest thou this. Never die can't be talking about physical death. Because we know that it's appointed unto man once to die. If we die, or if Jesus does not come before the end of our physical life, our bodies are going to be put in the grave. But that's not the death he's talking about. He's talking about the man on the inside, the eternal part of man. He said he'll never die. Why? Because the life of God shields against, once and for all, swallows up death for the individual. The death I'm talking about is spiritual death. Separation from God. Why? Because the life of God imparts rightness or righteousness unto mankind and causes him to be right with God for eternity. No matter how much I pray, no matter how many rules and regulations I keep, none of those things make me right before God, only the blood of Jesus. Only the death of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? He has a conversation with her. He winds up going to the grave of Lazarus. Now it's been four four days since he's been in the grave, and he commands them to take away the stone. They open the grave, and then he calls out and says, Lazarus, come forth. Verse 44, and he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. That means he's not walking. If he's bound hand and foot, he's not walking. He's not hopping. If he's bound hand and foot and comes forth, he comes forth not in his own power, but by the power of God. He that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin, and Jesus said unto him, Loose him and let him go. So he's not doing it on his own. If he was able to move his hands or his legs, he'd be able to untie his own grave clothes. He's not. Now let's move over to chapter 12. Chapter 12 starts off telling us about just before the last week of his life, he goes to a certain place. Well, let's just start reading in verse 1. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. And there they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then said one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, remember he's stealing, he's the treasurer of the group and he's stealing out of the bag, so his concern is not for anything other than himself, the money he could have stolen. Then said one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Then he said, not that he, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. Then said Jesus, let her alone against the day of my burying. She has kept this for the poor always you have with you, but me, you not, you have not always skip down with me a few verses to verse 12 on the next day. Much people were come to the feast 
when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at the first. This is what I was talking about, John making this statement himself. These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was with him when he had called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead bear record. For this cause, the people also met him, for that they heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees themselves said among themselves, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, perceive ye how you prevail nothing? Behold, the world is gone after him. And there went certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came, therefore, to Philip, which was a Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip came and told Jesus, or told Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip told Jesus. And Jesus answering said unto them, Now I want you to see what Jesus' mind is on. We think of Palm Sunday as being a great day of celebration, but notice what the Bible says Jesus was thinking about. Palm Sunday was about the people accepting Jesus as their sacrifice as their king, a worthy sacrifice. Just as the priest had to examine them, which was done through the trial that's going to take place several days later, the people are examining him now saying, he's good for us. That's the significance of Palm Sunday. But notice where Jesus' mind and heart is. Jesus answering said unto them, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, It abides alone. On the day where everybody is celebrating Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, why is he thinking about dying? For this reason. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. The Bible says, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross, the shame and the humility of the cross. Now, what did he do? He came to bring us life. But folks, life could only come one way, and that is through death. A ransom had to be paid. A sacrifice had to be made. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, that where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I into this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Now, when he talks about, maybe I should make mention in verse 25, he that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hates his life shall shall have it and save it to life eternal. He's not talking about hating and loving life like we think about hate and love. He's talking about anybody that values his natural life at the expense of spiritual things will lose everything. But if you value your spiritual life, if you value the life of God more than you value anything here on this earth that might hinder you from receiving that, then you get everything. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about attitudes. So he says, it's not right for me to say, Father, save me from this hour. Shows he doesn't want to do what he's going to do, doesn't it? Now is the hour come that the Son of Man should be glorified. But should I say, Father, save me from this hour? This is the whole reason I'm here. But I thought Jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly. He did. But it can only come through death. There has to be a price paid. So he said, Father, glorify thy name. There came there, there, then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people therefore that stood by heard it, said that it thundered, and others said an angel spoke to him. And Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Jesus doesn't need shoring up. He doesn't need encouraging. He doesn't need to know what he's supposed to do. He knows what he's supposed to do. This came for the sake of the people that were around. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the prince of this world cast out. Please notice that phrase. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the prince of this world cast out. What about Jesus at that moment in time has anything to do with casting out the devil or defeating the devil in any way whatsoever? Because Jesus has already made his commitment even though the sacrifice hasn't been made and won't be made for five more days. He's making the commitment that I'm going through with this. I'm going to be like the kernel of wheat that dies in order to bring forth much fruit, and that fruit will be the life of God for mankind. And he says, now is the judgment of this world.
Not man's judgment, but judgment against the devil, judgment against sin. Now is the prince of this world cast out. And if I and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This, he said, signifying what death he should die. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 5. I want you to notice, folks, that when Jesus is talking about life, one of the most precious scriptures that we have in John chapter 10 about life and death, the thief comes not but for to kill, steal, and destroy. I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. It's continually, completely connected with his death. See, life and death are inseparable. Life and death are inseparable. Life and death are the choice for mankind. Every person on the earth chooses between life and death. You remember in the Old Testament, God said, Behold, I set before you a blessing and cursing. Life and death. Choose life. In other words, it's man's choice. It always has been man's choice. Under the Old Covenant, all they could choose was to keep the law so that they could have a promise of life. For us, we can choose life through the blood of Jesus. Or you can reject it. Now, rejecting it does not mean you actively say, no, I refuse to accept Jesus. It's just a a refusal, maybe by default, an inaction of accepting Jesus because you're already spiritually dead. Mankind is already spiritually dead, and he has to take a deliberate action on his part to change that, to alter that, or else he'll remain in spiritual death. Jesus said it this way. He said, the whole world lies in darkness. Well, the darkness of what? The darkness of spiritual death. Romans chapter 5. Notice in verse 12. It says, wherefore, as by one man, the one man is talking about, that is being talked about, is Adam in the Garden of Eden. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered the world and death by sin. Please notice that phrase, death by sin. In other words, he's saying Adam's one sin in the Garden of Eden opened the door to spiritual death. They can't be talking about physical death. You remember the the, uh, the commandment of God, Thou shalt not eat of the fruit of this tree, for in the day that thou eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. Well, the death he's talking about there can't be physical death, because Adam didn't die for 930 years. So it's not physical death he's talking about. What death is he talking about? He's talking about spiritual death. In other words, the change of nature. When death passed upon all men by the one man's sin, what it's saying very simply is this. When Adam disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, he was alive unto God. The life that he had in him came because of God breathing the breath of life into him. God could not breathe anything into him other than himself. When he breathed into him the breath of life, he's giving him his own nature. He was right before God. He was righteous because he was right. He was in a condition of rightness. His nature and God's nature were the same. He was God's creation. He was the author of man's life. Therefore, man and God's nature were one and the same. They were inseparable. They were not the same in rank. And that's where a lot of people get messed up. They think, well, if you're saying we have the nature of God, that means we're like God. In nature, yes. That doesn't mean you're the creator of the universe. Nor does it mean you could be a creator of a universe. So we're not the same with God in rank, but we are the same as God in nature. And nothing else that God created was equal with him in nature. When it says Jesus counted not himself uh, uh, an evil thing to be equal with God, it means in nature. It doesn't mean in rank. It just says in Philippians chapter 2, it just said that Jesus laid aside his heavenly power and glory. In other words, when he came to the earth, he was not equal with God in rank. That's why he had to be anointed by John the Baptist in the Jordan River and the Holy Ghost came upon him. If he's here on the earth as God himself, who can anoint God? But he wasn't. He was here as a man. Below God in rank, but equal with God in nature. The life that the Father has in himself is the life that Jesus had in himself too. So it says again, verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all sinned. The word have is not there. In other words, when Adam sinned, you sinned. It's not that you got the benefit of Adam's sin, such as it is. The benefit thereof is death. I hope you understand I'm speaking of benefit facetiously. But it's saying because you were in Adam, because God created mankind the way that he did, so that man comes from man, 
so that man and woman unite together and have children. All of mankind was in Adam when Adam sinned. When he sinned, you sinned. It's easy sometimes to think, well, if if I'd been there, I wouldn't have done that. Well, you'd have messed up somewhere along the way. I mean, you've got the life of God in you now, and you mess up along the way. Right? What's the difference? But it's saying death passed upon all men, for all men sinned. Everybody was in Adam. You started off being in Adam. As long as Adam's got the nature of God, that is great. When he ceased to have the nature of God, when his nature became an unright nature because of sin, now he's spiritually dead. Now he's separated from God the Father for all eternity unless God does something otherwise because he can't do anything about it. He can make a sacrifice. He can make an atonement, what the Old Testament talks about an atonement. He can make an atonement and therefore have his sins covered from time to time. The Day of Atonement was once a year, so for Israel, it was a sacrifice made for the nation to cover the sins of the nation for one year. But nothing was done away with. It was just covered over. Unless Jesus is going to do something about sin once and for all, sin is still there, even if it's, if, if it's covered by the sin or by the, the blood of an animal sacrifice. That's why there's only one time in the New Testament where the word atonement is ever used. We're right here in verse 11, back up to verse, uh, I think it's verse 10. No, no, we were in verse 12, it's verse 11. Notice it says, and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. This is the only time atonement is used in the New Testament, and it's not the word atonement. If you look this word up, you'll find out that the word is used here, and it literally means to change mutually. Every other time it's used in the New Testament, every time this word is used, it's translated reconciled. Verse 10, it's got the same word translated reconciled. Let's back up to verse 10. For if when we were enemies, why were we enemies? Because we were dead. We were of a contrary or an unright nature before God. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled, that's the word reconciled, that's the word translated atonement. It means to mutual exchange. Let's call it this. Let's call call it a divine exchange. Because a divine exchange, to exchange mutually, means one thing is put in place for another thing, and the first thing is gone forever. Money is like that. If I buy something from you, the money I gave you is gone from me forever. And in exchange, I get whatever I purchased from you. That's why the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus is sometimes called a ransom. Because something was given in exchange for something else. So that the first thing that existed is gone forever in exchange for the second thing. The unrighteousness of mankind is gone forever because of the exchange that was made by the price of the precious blood of Jesus. The exchange brought us righteousness or the life of God. The life of God is the righteousness of God. They're one and the same. God can't have an unrighteous nature. So even if I make Jesus the Lord of my life and commit an unrighteous act or sin, my nature doesn't change. Because my nature is not based on my behavior anymore. Adam's nature was based on his behavior. Yours isn't. Your nature is based on your choice. Either for Jesus or to reject him. So verse 10 again, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled, mutually exchanged to God by the death of his son. That's the price that was paid. Much more being reconciled, that's the the end result of the mutual exchange. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Verse 11 again, and not only so, but we also join God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received this divine exchange. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all sinned. Skip down with me to verse 17. For if by one man's offense, again, it's talking about Adam in the Garden of Eden. For if by one man's offense, literally the word if is the word sense. It's the first tense of the four tenses of the Greek word if. It means if, and we know it is. So in our vernacular, in our language, it would be sense. For sense, by one man's offense, Adam's offense, death reigned by one. 
death but reigned by one. I like another translation about this. It says, death sees the sovereignty. For since by one man's sins, one man's offense, death sees the sovereignty. In other words, it's showing us the picture. Man was righteous before God because he was made in God's image. Man had God's nature. Adam and Eve had God's nature. He had, they had a nature of rightness, and that nature was based on their obedience. And when they disobeyed God and ate of the tree of the, the forbidden tree, it says that that one offense, that one action, that behavior on their part enabled death through that sin to seize the sovereignty, to seize the rule of mankind. And that death passed upon all of mankind. That's how sovereign that rule was that death seized. Folks, I want you to understand something. Life and death is not an immovable condition. Being ruled by the law of sin and death is not an unchangeable condition. Now, it's unchangeable by man's behavior. Your behavior can't overcome the law of sin and death. But God's can and did. For if by one man's offense death seized the sovereignty, much more. Everybody say much more. Please understand what the Bible is saying. Please understand what the Holy Ghost is telling you. It's saying just as real as death's sovereign rule came upon mankind, it's even more real, more powerful, more true that they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign, notice the next two words, in life. That word life is the word zoe. By one Jesus Christ. Do you know what's more true than the law of sin and death? Do you know what's more true than than the bondage that death holds over our physical bodies? The power of God that comes in Jesus. You know what's more true than the, the law of sin and death which imposes sickness upon our flesh? The healing power of God through Jesus. Do you know what's more real, more true, more powerful than the depression that the devil brings upon us through the circumstances of this life? The peace that we have through God, from God, through Jesus. That's what it's saying. It's saying since death seized the sovereignty through one man's offense, life seized the sovereignty back through Jesus. And all you have to do is receive it. For if by one man's offense, death reigned by one. Death seized the sovereignty. There had to be something for death to take in order to seize it. What did he seize? He seized man's nature, which caused us to be dead in trespasses and sins, which is the condition that Ephesians 2, 1 talks about. How do we overcome that? There's only one way to overcome that, through the precious blood of Jesus. Folks, there's only one sacrifice been made for you. Confucius, Confucius, didn't die for your sins. He didn't die to change your nature. Buddha didn't die to change your nature. Whatever is the head of Hinduism didn't die to change your nature. Muhammad didn't die to change your nature. Jesus did, though. I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. For if by one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more, much more, much more, It's even more true. It's even more real. It's even more powerful. They that which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. Notice it's a gift. It's not something you can work your way to. Shall reign in life. How do we reign? We seize the sovereignty back through the life of God. Why? Because it changes our nature. It restores our nature to even a better condition than Adam had. Hebrews 8, 6 says we have a better covenant established upon better promises. Why? Because the covenant in the the old covenant was based on their behavior. Your new covenant is not based on your behavior. It's based on your choice, your receiving of Jesus and his work. You've got a better covenant. You've got better promises. You've got more power than they had. You've got more blessings. Now, folks, if you look at the old covenant, they had some good stuff. 
They had a promise of healing. God said, I'll bless your bread and the water and I'll take sickness from the midst of you. The number of your days you'll fulfill. I'll bless all the work of your hand. Everything you put your hand to will prosper. I know a lot of people aren't happy about this, but there is no nation, no people on the face of the earth that have ever prospered like the Jews. There's no people on the earth that's ever been oppressed like the Jews. So you're going to tell me it's something other than the favor of God upon them? It's the condition of the old covenant. The blessing of the old covenant that is still upon them, even though their their keeping of the old covenant is pretty iffy in my opinion. It shows God's favor. They had some pretty good stuff under the old covenant. God told them, we looked at this last week, God told them that through obedience of the word, their days would be like, uh, days on the earth would be like days of heaven on earth. Sounds pretty good. You've got a better covenant established upon better promises. Why? Because much more, they which receive the abundance of grace shall reign in life, in the life of God. You know, if our eyes were just open for two minutes, to the, to, to the nature of God's life that's already on the inside of us. Not even trying to get something we don't have. Just the nature of God's life, the real power of God's life that you already have. It would transform you and you'd never be the same. I believe this is exactly what it's talking about when Jesus said in John 7 verse 37. In the great day of the feast, he stood in the opening and he said, cried with a loud voice, if any man come unto me and drink out of his innermost being, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Holy Ghost, which was not yet given. In other words, he's saying the life of God will provide rivers of living water. If you knew, if we could see, if our eyes could just be open long enough to see there's a river of healing that flows out of us. There's a river of prosperity that flows out of us. There's a river of peace that flows out of us. There's a river of blessing that flows out of us. There's a river of any good and every good thing that flows out of us. Rivers of living water. There's a river of wisdom. That flows out of your innermost being. Second Corinthians chapter five. Verse 17 is a favorite of mine. It says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Another translation says a new creation. One translation even says a new species of being. In other words, here's what the life and the nature of God coming into mankind causes him to be. It causes him to be something that never existed before. Folks, we're not talking about people giving their lives to a doctrine or a creed. We're not talking about them exchanging one set of rules in their life or the absence of a set of rules in their life for God's rules in their life. We're not talking about that. We're talking about life. We're talking about being a new creature. We're talking about being right with God because he becomes your father. We're talking relationship, not rules. If your Christian life is about rules, there's something you're not seeing in the right way. If you think God's going to be upset with you if you don't read so much of the Bible a day, you're not looking at things in the right way. If you think God's going to be upset with you because you don't pray enough every day, you're not looking at things the right way. Other religions pray and read and stuff like that. That doesn't do them any good. Every religion on the face of the earth has some type of prayer as a part of their doctrine. We're not talking about rules. We're not talking about doing something that makes you good enough before God. We're talking about realizing that he's your father. And because he is my father, I want to know what he says. So I read the Bible. Because he is my father, I want to talk to him, so I pray. Now, where my kids are concerned, I want to be with them as much as I can. Don't you? Aren't you that way with your kids? I want them to want to be with me. But there are times when they can't, and I understand that, and I don't get upset with them. And I don't turn them out when they come in next time and say, well, you ignored me yesterday, so forget you today. Yet that's the way some Christians think God is with them. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Oh, if only we could get people's eyes open to what it is to be a new creature. 
You're not an old creature that's been fixed up. You're not an old creature that's been accepted the way you were. You're a new creature. You're a new creation. You're a new species of being. There's a transformation that takes place when Jesus comes into your heart. We simplify it and say, just pray this prayer. Believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and pray this prayer in your heart. But it's more than just praying a prayer. It really is believing in your heart. It's having a desire for a change of nature. We're acquainted with somebody that recently prayed a prayer of salvation, and there's no change in their life. They said the words, but there wasn't a desire from the inside to be different than they were before. Well, what do you do? How do you handle that? Do you really bear down and say, now, now you really, 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 really have to believe? Well, then you make people afraid, and they don't know how to believe when they're afraid. You can't believe when you're afraid. But it takes something on the inside. It takes a desire on the inside for things to change. Now, folks, you may if you're not a Christian here today, if you don't know Jesus, I'm talking to you. Certainly I'm talking to you because there's no more important decision you can ever make than to accept the sacrifice of the Son of God, the only Son of God. Well, but I don't believe Jesus was the Son of God. I just want to say the prayer and try to take a chance and make sure things are right anyway. doesn't work that way. It takes a change of nature. It takes a change of, des- of desire. It takes a change of your will. You've got to want something different than what you've got. And I would submit to you right now that if you don't know Jesus is the Lord of your life, your life's not going so great anyway. You may have a good job, may have a lot of money, may have a lot of friends. But you know when it's quiet and it's just you and the silence that something's missing. Well, that something is Jesus. That something is Jesus. So I'm certainly talking to you, but I'm also talking to people that are already born again. I'm talking to people that have already been made new creatures in Christ that are still trying to hold on to things in their life. They don't want their life to change from the part that they're in control of. There's a better life for you too. The Baptist church I grew up in, we used to sing, I surrender all. I don't know why we sang that. We should have sung, I surrender some. (laughs) But oh boy, surrendering all. There's nothing like that. Back to verse 17. If any man be in Christ... He is a new creature, a new creation, a new species of being. Old things pass away. What old things pass away? The old nature, the unrighteous nature, the unrighteous nature, the nature that death sees the sovereignty over. It passes away because of the ransom of Jesus, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, because of the death that Jesus died. That's gone once and for all, never to return. You'll never be bound by the law of sin and death ever again unless you choose to put yourself in that position. That would be like somebody that's ransomed out of a kidnapping going back to the kidnappers and say, hey, can I hang around? Doesn't make much sense, does it? Old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. What all things become new? Your nature. You gain a nature of rightness before God, right standing before God, right condition before God, rightness in the sense that you have never sinned. The blood of Jesus doesn't just cover your sins. It cancels them out once and for all. Never to be raised again. You start talking to God about things that you did before you were born again, He's not going to know what you are talking about because those were canceled out, those were wiped away. He doesn't retain them in His memory, you shouldn't retain them in yours either. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Verse 18, and all things are of God. One translation says, this is the work of God, who has reconciled. There's this word reconciled. The same word is translated atone over in, uh, uh, what was it, Romans 5.10, I guess. It means divine exchange, a mutual exchange. This is the work of God, who has divinely exchanged us to himself by Jesus Christ. 
The divine exchange has been made, folks. It's not yet to be made when you get yourself cleaned up. It's already been made by the blood of Jesus. All you have to do is accept it. And that, in my opinion, is the greatest faith battle you'll ever fight. To accept it once and for all, to begin to act upon it, to begin to confess it. If I asked you, let me ask you a question. What is the greatest example of righteousness this world has ever known? How many of you believe it was Jesus? How many of you believe it's you? How many hands on that one, huh? Guess what? The same righteousness that Jesus had and operated in and was is yours. You're the greatest example of righteousness that this world has ever seen. Jesus had no sin to be born from. It was only after he went to the cross that he became the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? It can't be talking about physical death. We just read in John chapter 11 that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. That happened a week before he went to the cross. There are Old Testament examples of people that were raised from the dead. So Jesus couldn't possibly be the firstborn from the physical death. So what death was he the firstborn from? Spiritual death. He was the first person ever born again. The first person ever born again. How is that possible? Look at verse 21. For God made him, Jesus, to be sin for us. Remember what we read over in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12? Wherefore, by one man's sin, one man's sin, death seized the sovereignty. And so death passed upon all men. Remember? Sin was the entrance. The one man's sin, the original sin. When it says God made Jesus to be sin, it's talking about he made him to be the original sin. In other words, he took upon himself the same unrighteous nature through his choice, not through his, inat- not through his disobedience to God, but by his choice to go to the cross and become the sacrifice, he became sin for you. So that you, through his death, would be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus was born again from spiritual death just as real as you were born again from spiritual death. Otherwise, there couldn't have been a mutual exchange. There could have been a partial exchange. If Jesus' physical death was all that was necessary for the uh, salvation of mankind, then that's a partial exchange. But a mutual exchange means a a, a one-for-one. He gave up something so that you could have something. He gave up his life so that you could have his life. He took on your, he took upon himself your death, your spiritual death, your dead nature, so that you could put on his nature of life. Mutual divine exchange. Back to verse 18. And this is of God, this is the work of God, who has reconciled, who divinely exchanged us to himself by Jesus Christ, and has given to us the ministry of that exchange. That divine exchange. Reconciliation means divine exchange. It's the same word, change mutually. In other words, our ministry to the world is to tell them the exchange has been made. Now, every other religion on the face of the earth will say, here's what you have to do. Here's the list. You got to go to temple. You got to pray. You got to face this direction. Whatever it is, I don't even know what other religions do. I've heard some of the same things you have, but I don't know. Don't really care. But every other religion on the face of the earth gives you a set of rules. It gives you a set of regulations. It gives you a set of directions. Here's what you have to do to make yourself in right place with God. Christianity says, accept the exchange and become a child of God. No other religion offers you the opportunity to be a child of God. Because every other religion will say only through right behavior, and that's through an extended period of time, decades and years and so forth, only through an extended period of time of doing right things over and over and over again can you start changing yourself to become one with the Creator. Jesus said, just accept my exchange. I'll make you one with the Creator. I'll make Him your Heavenly Father. I 
I don't hear any other person of any other religion talking about God as their father. Do you? That's what the Jews wanted to kill Jesus for. He said, my father and I are one. They knew him as God. They knew him as Jehovah. They never knew him as father. Jesus is saying, because I've got the same life in me that he has in him, he's my father. That's the mutual exchange that was made. Death for life. Spiritual death. He was made sin with man's original sin. In other words, he took upon himself the nature of unrighteousness and exchanged his righteousness for it so that you could have it. And has given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. The good news is the exchange has been made. Now, folks, here's what that means to you. Again, if you're if you're not saved, if you're not born again, it means you can have a new life in Christ Jesus. But if you are born again, it means you can accept and walk in a greater measure of life than you're taking advantage of. Because it's a complete exchange. So many Christians, if you talk to them, you'll find out if they get honest with you, they'll, you'll find out, well, there's this one or two areas maybe or a couple of areas that, boy, if I, I just don't have what I need in those areas. Well, if that's really true, if what you need in those areas is not available, then it wasn't a mutual exchange. Because the life that Jesus lived here on the earth was a life without lack in every area. He never missed out on anything. Even when he needed strength, the angel showed up and strengthened him. Even when he needed food in the, in the wilderness, the angel showed up and gave him food. When they wanted to kill Jesus, he walked through the middle of the crowd. When he needed to get across the sea, he walked on the water. There was no lack in any area, in any respect in Jesus' life. I never have understood why people are willing to follow other religions. Show me anybody else that did the miracles that Jesus did. And, and, and if you could, if anybody else ever did the miracles that Jesus did, then I would understand. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go for it. I wouldn't follow their example. But I would understand why they accepted the other religion. I mean, at least that would be something that might trick them into thinking that it was the way to God. But whoever did the miracles that Jesus did? Who's doing miracles today that Jesus is still doing? And this is the work of God, who has reconciled us unto himself. The divine exchanges have been made by Jesus Christ and has given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. Folks, that's what the church is, the work of the church is all about. It's about telling people the exchange has been made. Not about here's what you need to do, here's what you've got to stop doing, here's what you've got to clean up in yourself. But that an exchange has been made. Jesus gave his life, the life of God, and took upon himself your death, your spiritual death, your unrighteous nature. He became sin. He became sin. He didn't just carry it. His nature changed. Just as real as Adam's nature changed from life to death in the Garden of Eden, Jesus' nature changed from life to death on the cross. And for three days, he suffered the punishment of the spiritually dead. But at the end of those three days, God said, that's enough. The price is paid. And Jesus became the first person born again from the dead. First person born again from the spiritually dead. Otherwise, there's still a price to pay for spiritual death. If Jesus didn't die spiritually, somebody still has to. Thank God he did. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes, please? Oh, Lord Jesus, we see these words. We know what they're supposed to mean. But open our hearts to realize them. Open our hearts to see that you've already done everything that will ever need to be done. For us to be in right standing with you. It's not about our works. It's about the work that you've already accomplished. For that reason, you're seated at the right hand of the Father. Because the work is done. I thank you, Father, that your blood, your righteous blood, the blood of Jesus, your your Son, the very Son of God, 
was sufficient to pay for death seizing the sovereignty over mankind. And that your blood, the acceptance of your sacrifice, the acceptance of Jesus as our personal Savior, is the only thing that causes life to rule and reign in us. With heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody looking around. If you're here this morning and would say, Pastor Mike, I want you to pray for me. I've never made Jesus the Lord of my life. But I see from the Scripture, from the words that you spoke, and more importantly from the things that the Spirit of God spoke to me inside, I see that I can have life just by accepting the work of Jesus. We're not asking you to to join our church. We're not asking you to follow our religious code. We don't have one. We're asking you to accept life in exchange for spiritual death. Now, it'll change you. It'll make a change in you. It'll cause you to operate differently. It'll cause you to care about different things. It'll be a change that your family and your friends will see. And they might not like it. But there's nothing worth sacrificing eternal life for. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If you're here and you'd say, Pastor Mike, pray for me. I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I want to accept Him. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to say a prayer for you. We're not even going to do it here in this room. We're going to send you to a little side room where you can pray privately, where you won't be concerned about others looking at you. Now, if somebody came with you and you want them to go with you, I'm sure they'll be glad to. It won't take but just a few moments. But we're just going to pray with you. We're going to show you what the Bible says about how to pray, how to accept Jesus as your Savior. It's that simple. But it has to be something that you really want from the, from inside. It has to be the cry of your heart, not just the desire of ours for you. So if you're here this morning, we say, Pastor Mike, pray for me. I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If that's your desire and if that's your prayer, if that's your wish, I just want you to lift your hand right where you are. By lifting your hand, you're just showing us who we're praying for. If you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life this morning, please raise your hand now. We'll pray for you. We'll lead you into the things of God. We'll show you what belongs to you. We'll show you what Jesus did. All right. I have another prayer that I want to pray for us as a whole, as a family. If you're here, heads bowed, eyes still closed, please. Just another moment. If you're here this morning and you would say, More than anything else, I want God to open my eyes so that I see what this life entails. So that I can manifest this life in every area of my existence here on the earth. And so that I can be an example to others of the life of God that they should want. If that's your desire, I want you to lift your hand where you are. All across the room. Then let's pray this prayer together. Every one of you, I'm going to ask you to say it with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your life. Thank you that I've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that because the Holy Spirit dwells in me, rivers of living water flow from my spirit. Rivers of healing, rivers of peace, Rivers of wisdom, rivers of divine help. Thank you, Father, for opening my eyes to who I am in Christ Jesus and what that life of God in me really means. Purge me, Father. Burn away from me everything that's not of you. In Jesus' precious name. So that all that's left of my life 
for others to see is you, Jesus. I ask in the precious and holy name of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Amen. 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 Let's all stand. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Folks, whatever you've been thinking, and it's a common thing that the devil attacks us all with, whatever you've been thinking still needs to be done has already been done. There's nothing that's holding you back from the fullness of the life of God in your existence here on the earth. You can have it now. Divine exchange. Once and for all. Say it with me. The Lord is good. And His mercy endures forever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Have a great week.